0: Hello, and welcome to the 45th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a bestselling author and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published in May and is receiving industry-wide praise. It can be ordered through his website, robertpearlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean?
1: Jeremy, when it comes to the pandemic, this has not been a good week. Confirmed cases continue to soar, now averaging close to 200,000 a day and deaths now exceed 1,000 on many days. These high numbers are what we would predict with a virus that's 50% more transmissible than the original strain, and with half of the population still unvaccinated. They make this month the third worst in terms of new infections since the start of the pandemic. The Delta variant now accounts for 99% of cases in the U.S., according to the CDC. And yet, despite the risk, even if we only look at the percent of the population eligible for vaccination, that is those over the age of 12, only 69% have had even one shot. And only 59% are fully vaccinated. The data on the dangers of being unvaccinated are clear. The rates of hospitalizations in low vaccination counties, that means fewer than 40% of people have received the vaccine, These rates in these low vaccination counties are four times higher than in the higher vaccination ones, areas with at least 54% of people being vaccinated. Across this week, we saw a growing number of recommendations for vaccination. The CDC encouraged any woman who's pregnant, breastfeeding, or even hoping to become pregnant to be vaccinated. It cited data on the higher risk of preterm birth from mothers who became infected with the coronavirus and the safety of the vaccine among the tens of thousands of pregnant women who have been vaccinated so far. The CDC recommendation aligns with that of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which is the leading medical society for the specialty. And of course, the big news was the Biden administration first recommending a booster shot for people who are immunocompromised. That means that they are either undergoing cancer treatment, individuals with AIDS, or patients following organ transplantation. And therefore, in all groups, at high risk of becoming infected even after two doses. And then, most recently, the recommendation to add a booster shot for all previously vaccinated Americans. And with the CDC yesterday, granting the Pfizer vaccine full approval for people 16 and older. We have already seen vaccine mandates becoming increasingly prevalent. It's expected that formal FDA approval for the Moderna vaccine will come in the near future.
0: Robbie, this recommendation for a third shot for people who've received the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine is confusing for many people. Why did President Biden do it? And what does it mean about the long-term efficacy of the various vaccines? Does this mean people are gonna be needing a new shot every six to eight months?
1: Jeremy, the White House announced that beginning the week of September the 20th, Americans who had been vaccinated eight months previously would become eligible for a third dose. And since the initial rollout targeted those at greatest risk of developing severe infection and dying. This approach will boost the resistance of those at greatest risk of coming down with the infection, healthcare workers, and those at greatest danger of dying, the elderly and those with chronic diseases. It's expected that the 14 million people who receive the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will also be advised to get a third shot but since that vaccine didn't receive FDA emergency approval until March, that's three months after the other two, this eight-month time period won't happen for the Johnson & Johnson recipients until later in the fall. Although there's some evidence that it would be better to boost the immunity of people who received a JJ and j dose with a different vaccine, either the Moderna or Pfizer, it's most likely that the final decision will be to use the original vaccine as a booster shot. It's expected that J&J will release data on immunity following a booster shot in the near future. Overall, the decision to recommend a third shot was controversial for multiple reasons. First, there's disagreement on the need for the booster vaccine. Although data from both the United States and other nations shows a growing number of breakthrough infections in vaccinated individuals, it continues to demonstrate effective protection against severe infection, hospitalization, and death, even against the Delta variant. A study from the Mayo Clinic Health System did show a major decline in transmissibility from 90% down to 42%, with the Pfizer vaccine and down to 76% with the Moderna vaccine. But a different study for the state of New York showed only a modest decrease from 90% down to 80%. And a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed that the Pfizer vaccine remained 88% effective against symptomatic infections, even against the Delta variant. For this reason, Some scientists believe that moving forward is premature. The rationale from the Department of Health and Human Services is that it's simply prudent to get ahead of the virus and maximize the protection of all Americans. And the choice of giving the booster eight months after the first dose, that too is subjective. Yes, the infection rate begins to rise slightly after six months, but that's only for relatively mild cases not severe infection. As we've said on this podcast, the body has multiple different ways that it can fight a virus. Most likely when infected people's immune system kicks into gear, it prevents severe disease. Whether the breakthrough infections reflect a weakening of protection from the vaccine or just greater transmissibility of the Delta variant, it's unclear at this point. And as a result, we don't know whether the protection against severe infection will diminish in the future or not. The Biden administration decided not to take the chance. In response to the decision to move forward with the third dose, other scientists have talked about the ethical issues of boosting the immunity levels of Americans, that already are very high, rather than using the vaccine to provide immunity for individuals in other countries where vaccination rates are extremely low. And beyond the ethical issues, there's the ever-present danger that continued high infection rates around the world will lead to more dangerous strains than even the current Delta variant. And as such be better health policy to use the available vaccine to maximize the number of people protected around the globe rather than administer hundreds of millions of doses to Americans. It's expected the Biden administration, however, will wait for both the FDA and CDC to approve the recommendation for the third dose before going ahead, although so far, no definitive word has been given. And finally, given the recent rise in infections, the TSA announced that the current mask mandate for all passengers would be extended at least until January of 2020. 22.
0: Robbie, a listener said that he had been ill with COVID-19 but is fully recovered. Uh, He's worried about getting vaccinated. What would you recommend?
1: Jeremy, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but what I can do is provide information on the most recent research specific to this question. Unvaccinated individuals who have recovered from a previous infection are twice as likely to become reinfected as those who had been infected, but subsequently were vaccinated. And this data, which was reported in morbidity and mortality weekly, was based on a study done prior to the Delta variant. So the gap today could be even greater. The reason for the added protection afforded by the vaccine is believed to be higher production of neutralizing antibodies following vaccination rather than after the disease itself. Of interest, for those who had been vaccinated, high antibody production happens after the first dose, whereas in people who have never been infected, it doesn't reach that fully protective level until after the second dose. However, two doses are still the current recommendation, even for people who've had the disease. Based on the CDC recommendation and the currently available Data, this listener should probably get the vaccine as quickly as possible.
0: Robbie, I appreciate your thoughts from the last episode on how parents might think about their kids in schools. Now that classes have resumed in many states, how are parents reacting at this point?
1: Jeremy, so far the surveys indicate a split decision. There's strong support for mandatory masking for unvaccinated students, 12 and older, with a support rate of 63%, but there's resistance to the idea of mandatory vaccination with 58% of parents opposing it. The reason for the latter continues to be fear about the safety of the vaccine overall, particularly when it comes to younger children. And since there's little data published on children in this age group, their response as parents is understandable. So far, 40% of kids 12 and older have been vaccinated, which is up from 34% last month, and another 6% of parents say that they will have their child vaccinated soon. 23% of parents say they're still taking a wait-and-see attitude, and 10% say they'll only vaccinate their child if it's mandatory, while 20% say that they'll never vaccinate their son or daughter, no matter what. Overall, the data appears similar to the overall numbers for adults. California recently became the first state to mandate vaccination for all teachers or require weekly testing for those who refuse. Following the approval of the Pfizer vaccine by the FDA, New York followed California's lead And we can expect that multiple other states will as well. Of interest, some union leaders are now supporting the decision despite their resistance in the past, something that didn't happen prior to the recent Delta surge. In total, 13 states now require staff and students to wear masks, 30 states leave the decision up to local authorities, and seven states have banned school masks entirely. Jeremy, as you know, mandatory mask requirements have been very controversial, with governors in states like Texas and Florida strongly opposing them. But some school districts are moving forward and defying the state restrictions. Given that the virus is the same everywhere, to me, this massive amount of variation Seems like chaos. What are your thoughts?
0: Robbie, it does seem like chaos. And I'll start by saying, I'm super against banning masks from school entirely. Um, But I feel like you and I are probably gonna disagree on this one. I'm actually against mandating masks for schools. I feel like any parent that wants to have their students wear masks to school should have their children do so. And parents that do not want their children to wear masks to school shouldn't have to. No one knows their children better than their parents. Young children especially don't really have that concept of hygiene and are very easily distracted. I know some kids adapt better to having masks on their face than others. I know when my son has to wear a mask, he's always sticking his finger under it, itching it or taking it off as soon as it bothers him or even just complaining how hot or uncomfortable it is. Another thing is it's very difficult to find a mask that actually fits small faces well. Almost every mask I've tried with my kid slips down his face over his nose after two seconds. I have seen kids, too, who don't mind masks at all. Like I said, though, every kid's different. Knowing what we know about how the virus hits people that are older and comorbidity is much harder than it seems to hit children, and knowing that with many small kids, keeping the mask on and not having it be a distraction is an issue. With the University of Waterloo study that was recently released stating that cloth masks are roughly only 10% effective and surgical masks are roughly only 12% effective. I don't know that most of the you know potentially ill-fitting masks that kids are wearing work all that great anyway. Um, they're not going to have the KN95 or the N95 masks that adults have or have access to. I feel like this should be really left up to the parents and not the state. I also feel it's extremely important to respect other parents' choices children should in no way be segregated or treated differently based on their parents' decision to mask or not mask their child. Robbie, we talked about both the risks from COVID-19, including the Delta variants, and risks from vaccines. Alyssa wanted to know if the relative balance has been mathematically calculated.
1: This month, the CDC released its report on this question. The conclusion was that the risk of illness, hospitalization, and death Following vaccination was much lower than the danger of becoming infected and suffering a complication from the virus. Three health problems have been tied to vaccination, and they were highlighted in the report. There are blood clots, it's called Guillaume Barre syndrome, a neurologic problem of peripheral nerves, and myocarditis. The blood clots and the Guillain-Barre syndrome have been predominantly associated with the J&J vaccine, while the myocarditis has been more associated with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. Here are the numbers. There have been 98 cases of Guillain-Barre at a 12.6 million doses of J&J with one death. Remember, this is a one-shot vaccine. There have been 38 blood clotting cases and four deaths from the J&J vaccine out of the same 12.6 million doses administered. And there've been 497 reports of myocarditis with no deaths after 141 million second doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Putting those numbers in the context of the number of people dying from infection developing long-term complications that are often similar to the vaccine-associated problems, the CDC believes the value of vaccination for all groups far outweigh the risks. It was interesting to read deeper into the CDC data. For each of these complications, there's variation about who gets affected, specific to age, sex, or both. For example, Guillain-Barre has a much higher frequency in men age 50 to 64, but a much lower incidence in women age 18 to 29. In contrast, blood clots are dramatically higher in women, particularly those in the ages of 30 to 49. Myocarditis was highest in males, age 18 to 29. And exactly why these variations happen isn't understood But we do recognize that immunity is different in men versus women, and it changes as people age. Although the report did not assess the risk in teenagers 12 to 18, a different report highlighted myocarditis as a particular complication in a small number of individuals. And in their study, there was one teenager who did die following the vaccination. Additional research is being done on this risk of myocarditis as part of the evaluation that's currently happening as as a component of the approval process for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in kids under the age of 12. For this listener who wants to understand the relative risk, here are the total numbers. For women, 30 to 49, getting the J&J vaccine out of a million doses, there would be six to seven cases of Guillaume barre and eight to 10 cases of blood clots. But the immunity provided would avoid 900 people being hospitalized and 20 dying. For men age 50 to 64, getting the J&J vaccine, there'd be one to two cases of blood clots and 14 to 17 cases of Guillaume barre and that's following one million doses, but that 1 million doses would prevent 1,800 hospitalizations and the death of 140 individuals. For the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, among men 18 to 29, two doses of the vaccine would lead to 22 to 27 cases of myocarditis, but it would prevent 300 hospitalizations and three deaths. When you step back and look in total, the numbers favoring vaccines are overwhelming. But as you and I both know, Jeremy, the fears of some people when it comes to the vaccine are, re- are very, very real.
0: Your recent Forbes article on vaccine mandates has over 300,000 readers, which is massive. Um, any more feedback on the legality of the practice?
1: The courts continue to rule in favor of vaccine mandates. The newest Supreme Court members, Justice Amy, Connie, Barrett, upheld the vaccination requirement that we discussed on a previous episode that was put in place by Indiana University for students to return to campus. The lower court ruling supporting the institution's right to require the vaccine, relied on a 1905 decision that supported the government's right to require people be vaccinated against smallpox. Given this new ruling, it's likely that other mandates will be upheld with exceptions made for religious or medical reasons. It's of interest that in this particular case of the eight plaintiffs, six of them had already received religious exemptions and a seventh was eligible. Various mandates are moving forward in numerous geographies. Both California and New York will be mandating vaccines for all healthcare workers. The military will be requiring this for all personnel. Now that the Pfizer vaccine is FDA approved, San Francisco among other cities will be requiring proof of vaccination for a variety of indoor activities, including visiting gyms, entertainment venues, bars and restaurants. California is also requiring all teachers and school employees to be vaccinated. Betty Pringle, the president of the nation's largest teachers union, the National Education Association, came out in support of mandatory vaccination for all of its members. This is a huge endorsement of vaccine requirements and a major step to protecting children from developing COVID-19.
0: The most frequent questions listeners are sending us are specific to their children. Uh, Cases seem to be spiking. What's going on?
1: As you point out, the number of children hospitalized with COVID-19 has now hit a record high, approaching 2,000 kids or 2.4% of total hospitalizations according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Remember, in the early days of COVID-19, it was extremely rare. This shift reflects the Delta variant and the lack of an approval for a vaccine to be administered to kids under the age of 12. In total, the rate of hospitalization for children is now 500% higher than it was in early July. According to data for the CDC, overall about one child in 100 who test positive for COVID-19 will require hospitalization. This is much lower than for adults, but it's twice as high as we previously had thought.
0: Robbie, with schools starting across the country, how are parents viewing their children's virtual educational experiences in the COVID-19 era? I know many people who personally have tried this option with their children and have had very mixed experiences. Uh, most of them felt like it did not work all that well for their children.
1: Jeremy, as you and I discussed last year, kids have paid a price for missing in-person learning. In a survey of 1,300 parents, 47% of those whose children were schooled virtually felt that their child had fallen behind, while only 26% of those whose kids attended in person believed this was the case. Similarly, 46% of parents of virtually schooled children felt their kids had fallen behind socially, while only 31% of those who attended in person believed that their child had suffered. Finally, 39% of parents of virtually schooled kids felt that their child had experienced mental health or behavioral problems, while only 22% of parents of kids who attended in-person reported similar problems. In response to a growing recognition of the value of in-person education, in an Axios poll, 69% of adults supported mandatory masking in schools and opposed state efforts to ban such requirements.
0: Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What's good this
1: week? This week, the best news, Jeremy, is seemingly counterintuitive. Here are three examples. Let's begin in Iceland, a nation with world-leading vaccination rates, a country that has eliminated all COVID-19 restrictions. And In Iceland, the cases are now soaring. A seeming failure of the vaccines. But if you look deeper, you see the huge success. Of the 1,300 documented infections, only 2% of people needed hospitalization. Without a robust vaccination approach, hospitals would be overflowing and people would be dying. And the country hasn't had a single death from COVID since May. That's very good news. The second story is about the timing of vaccination. Scientists are saying that it's possible that the reason people need booster shots isn't a waning immunity from the vaccine per se, but how close together the first two shots were given. A three or four week time period between a first and second dose of any vaccine is almost never done. Some scientists hypothesize that the recipient's bodies never had the chance to mount the maximal response because the second vaccine was given before the first one had peaked. And if that's the case, it's good news because with this projected eight-month window that the Biden administration is now talking about, people will generate far longer immunity, potentially extending for many years. The third piece of counterintuitive good news is the high number of baseball players testing positive for coronavirus. Of course, that in itself is problematic, especially if they're on your favorite team, but it offers a window to how well people are being protected, since nearly all of these cases were asymptomatic infections. As you pointed out a couple of episodes ago, the US stopped testing for the coronavirus once the vaccine rate Grows. As such, in most places we have very little idea of how well the vaccine is working. But based on the number of cases that professional ball players are experiencing, and how few have become sick, Americans who've been vaccinated probably are extremely well protected. And that's further good news. And the data from this daily testing of players will help epidemiologists calculate the chances of a vaccinated person getting sick, compare the results of people vaccinated with different vaccines, and establish how infectious vaccinated individuals without symptoms might really be. This information can guide future national policy, and decisions based on data are always the best, and therefore good news.
0: Robbie, we continue to hear from listeners that they enjoy our efforts to expand the material on this podcast beyond COVID-19 and the coronavirus. What's this episode's big healthcare story?
1: A healthcare news story from a journal called Health Affairs looked at 1,200 hospitals and the price they charge insurance companies for the same procedure. In this case, it's colonoscopy. As you might guess, the variation was huge. We knew that their price list which is commonly called the charge master, varies greatly. But also, no one actually knew how much the insurance companies paid. And people assumed that they were all getting the best deal. Now the researchers separated these 1200 hospitals into the 10% that were most expensive and the other 90% of hospitals that were less expensive. Overall, the lowest price among the most expensive 10% of the hospitals was $3,677 this is 4.6 times higher than what medicare pays for this procedure which is $793 among these 120 hospitals in the high cost category the negotiated price insurance companies paid varied from 3677 to 27,679 with an average of $5,005. The variation was equally massive among the 1,100 lower-priced hospitals with colonoscopy being paid at rates that varied from as low as $44 to a high of 3,676 with an average cost of 1,656. Now, Jeremy, try to imagine 1,200 gas stations or car dealerships with a 500 times price differential between the least expensive and the most expensive. And even if you discard the outliers at both ends, the variation remains five to 10-fold. But that's the nature of healthcare, despite the fact that these costs impact human health and human life. This particular paper didn't examine whether there was any difference in quality between the high cost and low cost facilities, but a previous study on hip joint replacement showed a similarly broad range going from $30,000 to $120,000. And in that work by the Pacific Business Group on Health, the measurable outcomes were identical. For listeners who think of medicine as rational, This information should make them think again. Although the care delivered may be scientifically based, the approach to pricing isn't, regardless of whether one looks at procedures, hospital days, or drugs. Jeremy, I'm perplexed by the continued low rates of vaccination in the more conservative states. I understand that in these locations, there's concern about overreach by the federal government. But as places that often vote Republican, you might imagine they would encourage vaccination to protect the economy. As a political scientist, how do you interpret what's happening?
0: Robbie, I'll preface this by saying that a lot of people might not like my answer, but I'll be blunt in my understanding of what's going on. Um, I'll also say that I have friends on every end of the political spectrum and regularly talk to all of them. I also want to say that a lot of people may not realize this, but uh, some people who are often demonized in the press as COVID bad guys are out there actively encouraging vaccinations. Ron DeSantis, for one, has been actively encouraging people to be vaccinated, even though he seems to be against mandates. And even Donald Trump at his huge rally over the past week and encouraged his audience to get vaccinated. I think that the major issue in these conservative strongholds is that there is more of a mindset that they do not trust the federal government or the news media. When you see on CNN, for example, Don Lemon talking about conservatives as though they're all racist rednecks or social media posts from liberal commentators or celebrities saying that they wished unvaccinated conservatives would die of COVID-19, that's having the exact opposite effect. That is not making them want to get vaccinated why would anyone listen to or respect someone who demonizes them? Uh, Conservatives actively see the current administration lying to them. Uh, If you want a recent example, look at what's happening right now in Afghanistan. What reports on the ground are and what footage is showing people is very different from what the administration is saying and is much worse than what they're saying. They're also being asked to trust the FDA when they can look online and read about what happened with the recent Alzheimer's drug approval debacle, And they can also do their own research and find out that it's not uncommon for approved drugs to later be recalled or have problems. A 2017 CNN article said that one-third of drugs approved by the FDA between 2001 and 2010 later went on to have some kind of safety event after reaching the market. The CDC has had messaging that's been extremely confusing for the average people to follow. And Big Pharma jacks up the prices on things like EpiPen and EpiPens and insulin needlessly. And it's clearly profit-driven and has a lot of lobbying power. I would interpret what's going on right now with the vaccination rates and Red Strongholds as proof that there is a major crisis of faith and trust in the federal government and media. Yes, I think it absolutely sucks more people are not getting vaccinated in these areas. Most conservatives I know, though, want to make their own decisions and they want to come to their own conclusions. They do not want to be told what to do. They do not want the federal government making their decisions for them via mandates or coercion. That is only going to breed conspiracy theories and distrust. This is the part that I think will be unpopular, but I think it needs to be said for people who maybe do not know many conservatives or understand their mindset. I think the federal government, the FDA, the CDC, Big Pharma, and the mainstream media all have some blame in the low vaccination rates in these red strongholds as well people very justifiably have reasons to be skeptical of all these organizations. I think to an extent, these organizations need to look in the mirror and think, why are people struggling to trust us? What can we do to build trust in these communities that have a hard time trusting us? I think this, along with a bipartisan olive branch and much clearer messaging, would go a long way towards helping resolve this issue. Robbie, a physician listener posed the following series of questions. Are there any statistical models to calculate the continuing risk of novel pathogenic COVID-19 variants? Is there evidence that these variants can arise among vaccinated, can arise among the vaccinated part of the population? And can herd immunity be achieved if those who are vaccinated can still harbor the virus? And he adds, I enjoy the podcast. Please continue the great work.
1: Jeremy, I'm so pleased that so many listeners find our podcast informative. And a trusted source of updates. So let's begin with the basics. The coronavirus has as its genetic material a single strand of RNA. This material consists of a series of one of four nucleic acids that can be thought of as letters of the alphabet. Combinations of them instruct cells to manufacture specific proteins in the same way that a combination of letters spell out specific words. When the coronavirus infects a human, the RNA inside of it is released and it instructs the infected person's cells to replicate the exact RNA sequence thousands of times, leading to progressive illness for the individual and viral transmission to others. Now most often the copies are exact, and the next round of people infected have the exact same disease as the first person. Often though, an error is made in the replication process, which makes the virus less able to infect people, and that variant disappears. But on occasion, the new sequence leads to a change, particularly in the spike protein, that makes it easier for the virus to be transmitted and infect people. These are the mutants we talk about today, including the Delta variant. In the viral competition for people to infect, the virus with a higher transmissibility is the one that will dominate, even though at first it is uncommon. This is what we've seen with the Delta variant and why it now accounts for almost 99% of infections in the US when six weeks ago, it was down in the single digits. But this is background to answer the listener's first question. Scientists can estimate the frequency by which errors are made. What they don't know is how likely it will be that a future variant will end up being more transmissible. And if so, by how much? And that is the key question. They can only calculate the difference in transmissibility once the new strain becomes more common. This is what we discussed on the show relative to Delta a couple of months ago. Phrased differently, researchers have models that can predict changes in the biochemistry of the virus, but not the biology. Of course, they could make assumptions based on past trends, but that's different than what the consequences will be for people in the future. For listeners who like analogies, think about thousands of people sitting in a room copying a poem. After proofreading the copies, it's relatively easy to calculate how often an error happens. Most of those errors will lead to gibberish. And they won't be recopied in the errant form. But maybe one in a million will improve the literary impact. And that will become the version that people buy. Will it happen with this coronavirus? And if so, when will it occur? questions remain speculative at this current point. And that leads to the second question. Yes, the same mutation process happens every time the virus replicates, and it's transmitted to someone, regardless of whether that person in whom it happens has been vaccinated in the past or not. As such, the issue isn't whether the virus makes the vaccinated person sick, but whether it can be transmitted to another person. What scientists now think is that the immunity best protects individuals against infection specific to their internal organs like their lungs, which is why so many infections in vaccinated individuals remain asymptomatic. But transmission is likely to revolve around the surface of the mucosa in the nose and throat, where the immunity would be much less. Overall, if the new viral mutant is more transmissible, it will become the dominant form, even though it began in a vaccinated person and even though it didn't produce a severe infection in that individual. Finally, the listener wants to know about the infections in vaccinated people ruling out the possibility of herd immunity? And the answer here is no. It does not mean that herd immunity can't be achieved. For background, let's think about 10 people with COVID-19. Let's say that given the Delta mutant, that those 10 individuals would infect 50 people, assuming that none of them were vaccinated, and those 50 would infect 250. If the majority of the people in the population are vaccinated, then those 10 would not spread the infection to 50, but instead maybe only to 15. And the prevalence of disease would still increase, but not nearly as fast as prior to the vaccine. Now, if the majority of people were vaccinated, those 10 would spread the infection maybe to 15 rather than 50 and the prevalence of the disease would increase, but not as fast as prior to the vaccine. But most likely as more individuals, probably more than 90% of people were vaccinated. Then the 10 people would only infect nine, and they would infect eight and so on until the virus disappeared from broad immunity. Now, of course, if the number of breakthrough infections were high, then again, the 10 people would transmit the virus to more than 10 people and it would grow. And at this point, we can't be certain how often breakthrough infections occur. But because few people would become infected, the chances of a new variant developing would still be low and the problem could be controlled. And as such, the big problem isn't the ability of vaccinated people to have breakthrough infections, but the reality that given the current vaccine hesitancy, we will reach the 90% level. And so we'll not only see relatively asymptomatic infections in the population, but we'll also see severe infections hospitalizations, and death. And that means that the virus will continue to persist, circulate and mutate, and pose major risks for everyone.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website, or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.